we find people sometimes are really shocked by something they just hadn't expected to see that's caught their eye. People come to TFF to spend a day or two or three looking. They're not looking at their watch to see if they're going to go to the dentist or if they're late for something other appointment in the afternoon. They're here to see the fair. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to another edition of The Grand Tourist Selects, where we highlight the finest and most intriguing works of art and design from events around the globe. On today's episode, sponsored by the Tafoff Art Fair, we're recording from Maastricht in the Netherlands, where the fair is running until March 19th. This year, the legendary Art and Antiquities Fair has returned to its traditional spot on the calendar, with dozens of dealers from around the globe selling everything from medieval playing cards and Art Deco furniture to Flemish master paintings and Roman vases. And if you want to follow along, you can find images of the pieces on my Instagram at Dan Rubenstein or at The Grand Tourist Podcast. Today, we'll discover an alluring sculpture from a little-known ancient civilization a contemporary glass vessel holding the remains of a prized but shattered bit of porcelain, an ultra-rare table clock from Vienna's golden age of design, and a gorgeous terracotta Madonna and child from the Florentine Renaissance. But first, I meet Polly Sartori, an art world veteran and expert in 19th century European paintings from Texas's Gallery 19C to speak about a Venetian landscape in oil by legendary French master Jean-Baptiste Camille Perrault. We'll find out why this maestro and his period can sometimes be overlooked, and how his techniques inspired an entire generation of legendary artists. And tell me a little about your background in in the industry. Okay, my background. Well, um, I knew I wanted to be an art history major before I went to college because I had a great social studies teacher in high school who spent five weeks doing art history. I went to Wells College uh, in New York State, Women's College, and I was co-ed, and I received my BA. Moved to New York City, got an entry-level job at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Worked there for seven years, but I also got my master's degree from NYU uh, in art history. And then I was hired at Christie's in their 19th century paintings department, and that's when my sort of career in 19th century paintings started. And I ran the 19th century paintings department at Christie's in New York for 16 years. Then one day was hired away by Sotheby's and ran that department, 19th century paintings, for 16 years. And then in 2016, a very good collector named Eric Weeder decided he wanted to start a gallery devoted to 19th century European paintings. And he asked me if I would join him, and I said yes. Okay. So you <laughs> so you left the big city and went out to a different big city yes, uh, yes, in yes. Dallas. Yes, we could and, say that. And uh, tell me a little bit about the gallery itself and, and kind of how it's set up today and, and how it's been going. Well... Our focus is exclusively on 19th century European paintings. And when I say that, I mean, basically artists who are active in Europe in the 19th century, not necessarily the French Impressionists. Our goal is to showcase many artists. Of course, artists in the 19th century I know you've heard of, such as Corot, Courbet, Delacroix, Géricault, they all fall under our umbrella. But if you were to go in our booth at TFF today, my guess is you might not know most of our artists. So our goal is to to really highlight these artists who were really good and had great stories and were very, very important during their time, just to give greater recognition to them in, in the marketplace. And what would you say, you know, when it comes to 19th century uh, paintings like this, European paintings, what would you say is the, 
what do you understand as someone who worked in that in field for you know 30 years before moving to this gallery what would you say is uh what is the most misunderstood element of it or 19th my 19th century and let's say it's 19th century european paintings and as i said i don't want to be too confusing here because the impressionists are 19th century um you know, most museums have 19th century paintings, but they've just been sort of overlooked. They've been overlooked almost since they were painted. And they just have, as I said, they're very interesting. They have great stories to tell. And it's a real pleasure in the gallery or being here at Tefaf when people come in and say, oh, who is Emile Friand? Who is Fernand Pelez? And we can launch into, you know, like a half an hour telling them, you know, just wonderful, wonderful facts and great stories about these artists. So I'd say about 19th century is that it's been, it's been overlooked for long for too long a time. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they've been overlooked? You know, people for people were collecting impressionist paintings. They wanted the names. They wanted Monet. They wanted Degas. They wanted Renoir. They wanted Manet. And I think they overshadowed everything else. And now what we're doing is actually almost more kind of, of a challenge because we're moving out of the 19th century into the 20th century, into the 21st century, into what I call the tsunami of contemporary art. And when most people hear about shows or they hear about the market, they hear about contemporary art. So as I said, I think of contemporary art as kind of this tsunami that's kind of covering everything else up. And a fair like TFAF, because there's so many other things leading up to contemporary art, I think is, is, is kind of like didactic is showing people. And, you know, you've been doing this for a, for a while, and so you're, you're probably the best expert I could speak to about this. Why do you personally... Uh, have devoted, you know, such a chunk of your professional career to to this particular time in, in art? I honestly think it's because of the discoveries that can still be made. I mean, in my time in the auction world and now at Gallery 19C, you never know. I mean, in the beginning, it was what Polaroid snapshot. I mean, I'm dating myself, but it was what Polaroid snapshot might fall out of an envelope of a painting. Now it's what email you may get. And I can't tell you how many times something would be there, and it, it may be an artist I'd never even heard of, but I could tell that it was a sensational, spectacular picture. Now with you know Google, you find out a lot. So I think it's really been um, making these great discoveries, discovering artists that no one really has heard much about. Are there any, can you, can you detail any kind of recent discoveries or anything that you just found fascinating? Well, actually, yes. Um, and one of the artists that I've really developed a great interest in love for is an artist named Emile Friand. He's an artist from Nancy in France, painted in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. And um, I actually discovered him in a Sotheby's sale. I mean, so I did get the snapshot. It was an email from Hawaii, of all places, of a magnificent picture, which we sold. And it's actually now in the Musée d'Orsay. Um, so over the summer, I opened up my email, and there was this beautiful little picture by Emile Friand of uh, an oil sketch. And I personally love oil sketches because they're sort of the first thing the artist thinks of before they go to the finished product. And if one can say they are impressionistic, they're, they're not like photographs, they're not academic, but they're very spontaneous. And this was a study for a painting in a museum in France called, and it was called Le Pain, the bread. And it was a woman holding this loaf of bread with her two children. And it was, it had a lot to do with sort of life in the mines and, you know, kind of, you know, being impoverished and strikes. And the 
it was just a discovery of a very lost oil sketch and um, by Emile Friant, an artist who I really, really like. And we've had it at TFAF and we actually sold it the first day. Fantastic. And now uh, one of the highlights uh, of the show is this painting by Corot that you have in your booth. Um, before we speak about that painting in particular, tell me about Corot and who who he was and uh if you could, if you could, uh, I mean, he's very, he's a, he's a big figure, but um, where does he stand in the sort of the pantheon of 19th Well, century? I think we can say completely that Corot was probably the most significant French landscape painter of the 19th century. He comes from a tradition from the early 19th century um, of painting plein air. That's how he started, and especially his works in Italy, of which that's our picture of Venice from his second trip in 1834. And then he progresses. Um, he dies in 1875, so he lives a, a really long life. And his style changes completely throughout each decade. And he starts with these plein air oil sketches. Then he goes to these giant pictures that he puts in the salon, the Paris salon. And these can be uh, history pictures like uh, Hagar in the Wilderness, very different sort of things. And then from the 50s on, he gradually, I want to say he almost turns into an impressionist. But Corot would not like me to say that because if he was an impressionist, because he's doing more impressions in the way that he's painting, um, it's because that's how he sees things. But he, he really didn't want to be called an impressionist. But the, the next generation, the Monet and Degas, I mean, they are quoted as saying, you know, Monet said, you know, he was our master, you know, he was the greatest. And Degas said he anticipated absolutely everything before us. So at the end of his life, or really, I guess, the last 30 years of his life, he's painting these things called souvenirs. And they're painted in his studio, but he's remembering what he's seen in all these different locales at that point, usually in France. And he's putting them together in a very different technique than he started when he was working outdoors in Italy, which is our 1834 Venice picture, which he sat there and saw. Now he's in his studio, but he's remembering these things and he's putting them together to create the most beautiful landscapes. And um, they almost turn into something that is almost more poetic. It's almost kind of, in a way, existential to me even to describe because it's how he's seeing nature, but it's not like visually looking at one spot, but it convinces us of, of what he's seeing of a great landscape. And what, what made him technically uh, a painter that the people who came after him said that he was such a man. Well, I think the early Italy things when he was painting outdoors, but I think it was more his, again, I'm using Impressionism when I speak about him in the small I, not the capital I that we know from 1874 during the first show. If you look at his pictures, his later pictures, I mean, again, I'm saying from 1850s on, especially the 70s, we actually have a beautiful late landscape in our stand here at TFAF from 1871. It, it is their impressions, their impressions of leaves, their impressions of flowers. The flowers in the fields are tiny little dots. You know, you know they're flowers, but they're not, you can't really get up close to them and see that they're painted technically like a flower. And that was something that I think greatly appealed to the next generation of artists who we know as the Impressionists today, specifically Monet. And now about the, to, to speak a little bit about this particular piece, um, it's 1834, yes. if I'm not mistaken, um, and it's in Venice. It's a, the canals of Venice, I guess you could say. Or is it, I guess it's the, it's, the it's, church that I'm Yes, uh, Santa Maria della Salute, the Duomo, the Duomo at Santa Maria della Salute. 
Uh, yes, Corot went to Italy on this three-year campaign from 1825 to 1828. He mainly did a lot of beautiful sketches around Rome, but he did go to Venice in July of uh, 25, and he painted this scene, exactly the scene of our painting. Again, very plein air outside. Um, but there was a cholera outbreak, so he left. His second trip to Italy was in 1834, and he went back to the exact same spot that he had painted in 18, uh, 1828 and uh, painted the scene, and that's our picture. And he was, like so many artists, you know, centuries earlier, he was, he fell in love with this pearly, pearly light. It's not a bright sunlight. It's like, you know, we see in Venice, it's this pearly, pearly light. And uh, the salt air was something that he, you know, loved. And then the buildings, you know, the, the, the color of the buildings or these soft terracottas and roses. And then the reflections in the water, you know, are like reflected in the same way. So I think he was just enamored with Venice. And uh, that's what our painting is. And what do we know about the, the provenance of the piece since, since it left his uh, studio? Our picture, it, it passed through some early collections. Um, it was in some very good exhibitions, I believe, in the 90s. Um, it ended up in a really nice French collection that I actually saw in this collection in a beautiful Paris apartment in 2000. And um, after that, they, they decided to part with it. And what would you tell somebody who was in the art world that was interested in, you know, entering 19th century painting? Uh, and uh, what would you? What advice would you give them to 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 start? Let's say someone was only contemporary, and uh, you know they've had enough Anish Kapoor's in uh. their house, and they've decided to. <laughs> oh wow! They've decided they were like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm going to start collecting 19th century. What would you? What advice would you give them to start? Um, you know, go to museums. I mean, museums. While you won't see a lot of the paintings that we're offering you will see 19th century paintings. If you go to the Musée d'Orsay now, and you go in the front door where you enter, and you go down to the right, go all the way through there, go on the second floor, then come all the way around the other side. Don't go up to the third floor where the Impressionists are. Just do this tour all around, and you will see our 19th century going from these artists you may not know around to you know the giant pictures by Courbet and then Barbizon paintings. And then if you go up the next level, you see more 19th century paintings. So I think my recommendation would be go to Paris, go to the Musée d'Orsay, and do this first, second floor tour and just see the other sort of uh, paintings that they're exhibiting. And I can guarantee you it will not be as crowded as the third floor. Up next, I explore the ancient world of the Near East and a fascinating female statuette in stone known as a Bactrian princess. Dated about 2200 to 1900 BC, it's on offer from Paris's Gallery Kevorkian, a storied family in the world of art and antiquities. I speak with Corinne Kevorkian, the gallery's director, about why this mysterious work, carved out of stone to appear like a woman, sitting cross-legged and covered in some kind of textile, appeals to contemporary eyes. And tell me a little bit about the gallery, because I know it has a really interesting background and has 
been in your family for quite some time. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the history of the gallery? Yes, so Gallery Kevorkian actually has a very uh, old history. Actually, this year will also be another anniversary because it will be uh, our centenary, sort of, uh, a century of a gallery established at the same address, meaning on the left bank of the Seine uh, River in Paris. It's, it dates back to the 19th century, actually, originally. It started with my grandfather and great-uncle generation. Uh, they were already, so they were born in Turkey, in eastern Turkey, and uh, there were several uh, Kevorkian brothers, and they already had uh, not uh, dealing business in different uh, parts of the world because they had a shop in Tehran, another one in Bombay. And after uh, the events uh, at the turn of the 20th century in the Ottoman Empire, they all left. Uh, my great uh, uncle, Agop Kevorkian, established himself in the United States, where nowadays there are uh, rooms in the Metropolitan Museum and a whole section in the Brooklyn uh, Museum uh, which bear his name. Uh, there is also a very famous foundation, the Agop Kevorkian Center, Center for Near Eastern Studies, which is established uh, in New York uh, in association with uh, today uh, New York University. And so he was as associated with my uh, grandfather, who started his, his business in Paris, uh, and he was established at the address where we are now uh, nowadays uh, since uh, uh, 1923 now. And so what was the specialty that they collected back then? So back then, anyway, there were this generation of uh, Armenian uh, art lovers and dealers and businessmen. For instance, Kalus Gulbenkian was part of the same generation and he purchased a lot from my grandfather. So Kalus Gulbenkian uh, being the founder of uh, Gulbenkian uh, Foundation and Museum in, uh, in uh, Lisboa. So they were very uh, collected of ancient Near Eastern and Islamic art, uh, and they contributed a lot actually uh, to promote uh, in the promotion of these arts uh, in the Western uh, world, so meaning in Europe and the United States. Uh, so the core of their collection and dealing uh, art dealing was uh, Islamic art and ancient Near Eastern. But my grandfather was also uh, dealing with Japanese, uh, Far Eastern uh, art, and you know different. It was also a generation of dealers, uh, which was very encyclopedic and dealing in uh, different uh, areas. And so what is what has been the oldest piece you've ever sold? Well, I think the oldest piece I've ever sold uh, dates back to the 5th millennium BC. Uh, so a Neolithic uh, piece. Uh, and we also deal a lot with uh, pieces of the third millennium BC, which is uh, already uh, very, very old. Uh, we have quite, not a lot, but on a regular basis, uh, pieces dating uh, from the Bronze Age, so third millennium BC. And what would you say uh, to those collectors out there that might be meeting you for the first time here at Tefaf, and they might not collect you know, Near Eastern art or not know much about it. Why would you, what, what do you like to, to tell them to sort of say that this part of the history and world is worth collecting and is fascinating in, in its own way? Well, anyway, most, uh, it happens quite a lot actually that people uh, who are not actually collecting in this field primarily, 
and who don't uh, even have any specific knowledge about them uh, are really uh, mesmerized by the modernity and the originality of these pieces. And this is true uh, as well as for uh, the ancient Near Eastern uh, period. So, for instance, the pieces I was mentioning you of the third millennium BC, and it all goes also for pieces of Islamic times. Uh, for instance, I have two examples here in Tefaf of the two different periods. One of them is the Bactrian princess, which is kind of a star of my stand uh, uh, this year. And another piece, which is a Samanid bowl of the 10th century, AD this time, so it's the Islamic period, uh, with just a very, very simple uh, inscription, calligraphic decoration uh, on a very plain and very pure ground, which is very, uh, this kind of stylization and of epuration is extremely modern looking. So uh, people might be uh, interested by this characteristic. And what I would say to them is that it's, for, it's a very... Um, not publicized uh, civilizations, uh, it's not enough publicized, but it's an extremely uh, original uh, civilization uh, with extremely imaginative and with very uh, origi original uh, aesthetics. And, and tell me about the, the Bactrian princess, which is sort of the star of your, of your booth today um, here at Tafoff. Um, Tell me about this civilization that it comes from, which I had not never heard of until uh, until researching this piece. Um, tell me about it. And uh, you have never heard of it for good reasons. It's true that it's a not well-known civilization at all. Uh, first of all, it was discovered not so long ago. The first uh, piece which was dug out was dug out in the 1960s. Uh, and in any way, it's still a very mysterious civilization because there is no writing uh, known uh, from this civilization. But it was obviously a very important civilization. So it's a civilization which, which was established between the late 3rd millennium BC and uh, first centuries of the 2nd millennium BC, so meaning between roughly between, say, 2300 BC and 1700 BC. Uh, it was established uh, in uh, areas which are nowadays northern Afghanistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, as far as we know. And it was a, obviously very developed uh, civilization, a urban civilization, so very uh, early uh, urban uh, civilization. And it was related to, so uh, there was certainly a trade of raw material between this area and uh, as far at least as Mesopotamia. Uh, Mesopotamia. And on a cultural uh, point of view, it is very related to the Elamite uh, civilization, which uh, was more uh, established in Iran, which is more uh, known than uh, the Bactrian civilization. Uh, but it's out of the borders uh, of the Elamite uh, empire. But in terms of uh, iconographies, uh, ways of expression, uh, forms of ob objects such, uh, such as uh, axes, but uh, ceremonial uh, axes. Uh, it seems to be very re related to the Elamite uh, civilization. But it is also very original uh, with a production of small composite statuettes, 
uh, to which belong our uh, Bactrian princess. So they are so-called Bactrian princesses made of two different materials. Uh, so the dark, uh, the dark part of the dress, body, and sometimes a headdress being in chlorite or steatite, which is a, a rather dark, uh, dark gray um, uh, or green stone, and the face uh, being white in calcite, so a sort of uh, limestone. And these uh, statuettes are very uh, keep all their mystery. Uh, there are different interpre interpretations. One of them being that they are ladies of high ranks, uh, hence the term of uh, Bactrian princess. And the most uh, likely interpretation now is that there would be uh, depictions of. Uh, a sort of mother goddess, protective uh, goddess uh, of a central uh, Asian uh, area, which protects uh, the crops, uh, the waters also, and which is a very uh, beneficial uh, figure uh, and kind of motherly uh, figure too. And what's, what's fascinating about it is that the body is sort of kind of square and then kind of slumps as if it was someone had like a parka on and they had their hands underneath or they're sitting you know, cross-legged, um, but the head is removable. Do you know what happens when you remove it? What is underneath? Yes, I know. There is nothing. I mean, it's the the, the body is plain. It's not like a flask, or it, it could. Uh, and and actually, there are some uh, very nice production of uh, cosmetic flask, for instance, in this civilization, but rather uh, in copper or uh, bronze. Uh, but as far as the Bactrian princesses uh, are concerned uh, they are actually statuettes and really uh, in a very prestigious uh, context funerary maybe in temples uh, to in some uh, occurrences uh, so they had no other uh, utility uh, uh, than being uh, statuettes or uh, and and so how you know with the removable head do we know why they were removable well, actually, uh, so maybe they were plastered uh, to the body at some point, but as I said, it's two different colors, so it allows to contrast the whiteness of the head uh, with uh, darkness uh, in the web uh, of the body. But also there is a contrast, and specifically in our statuette, which has only uh, the, the, the body and the garment is only engra engraved, and the delicacy uh, of the features of the face, which is almost naturalistic uh, in a way. It's very stylized, so all the features are not there, but uh, the way uh, the nose and the ears, for instance, are, de uh, are depicted is extremely uh, refined and almost naturalistic. So there is a contrast also between the stylization of the body and the naturalism of... Yeah, it almost seems a little bit modern in the way that it's very contemporary. It's, you know, uh, for instance, our statuette has, uh, has been part of a very important exhibition uh, which was conducted after, after the destruction of the uh, Bamiyan uh, Buddhas. Uh, it, it was an international uh, exhibition organized by, by Fondation uh, Kaisha in Barcelona and with Musée Guimet in France, but it was also exhibited in uh, Tokyo and uh, Houston. Uh. The title of the exhibition was Afghanistan, a Timeless uh, History and this uh, word timeless uh, really uh, is very uh, is very meaningful as far as the Bactrian princesses are uh, concerned. They are really timeless figures. Uh, has it sold yet? Yes. It has. Oh, okay. <laughs> it has. <laughs> Up next, I speak with Adrian Sassoon, 
co-founder of his eponymous gallery in London that stands out as one of the contemporary dealers at Tafov. Focusing mostly on works in ceramic, glass, porcelain, and metal, the works on offer there elevate their materials to stunning heights. In particular, we focus on a piece by Balka de Vries, an artist who gives shattered ceramics a new life in truly inventive ways. Tell me a little bit about the gallery and, and how it started and, and what your specialty is. Having worked in a museum for five years and then for a dealer for another five years in antique works of art, I started working for myself and I already had quite a large collection of French 18th century ceramics and a great lady curator director of the French National Museum of Ceramics at Serf came to see me and she was very interested in my 18th century pieces, but she kept on saying, I know what that is, I know what that is but then pointing across the room at my contemporary collection, saying, but what is that? Who made this? And then I realized that people who are knowledgeable about 18th century objects and ceramics in general would actually be quite interested to see contemporary pieces that I was personally interested in. And so about 30 years ago, it became a profession uh, of mine uh, uh, to show as a gallerist contemporary ceramics, then of course, glass as well, and eventually silver, hardstones, lacquer, and other objects. Very traditional materials are used by seriously trained, experienced, art school educated artists. And we show the work that's made now, today, and recently in the past, recent past, um, by people from across the world, regardless of nationality. That doesn't really interest me as much as the quality of the object. And do you consider, how do you feel about the, how do you describe the work? Do you describe it as contemporary craft? Do you like the word craft? Are you kind of we design? We avoid the word craft because it sort of at first sounds a little bit sort of cottage industry, crochet sort of from the age of eight to 80. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But these are people working at the peak of professional uh, creativity. They are artists. Our, our artists are artists that have their own signature styles and also are often pushing the use of materials in new directions rather than actually finding new materials because nature being what it is supplies the human being with the same vast range of materials from the beginning of history. So picking up on that, um, the continuity of ceramics fits. Nowadays, new ceramics fit in an environment of interest with antique ceramics. Ancient or medieval or 18th century silver working actually relates incredibly to contemporary silver working. So um, I just try and present objects as being bona fide, mature, wonderful objects that just fit into the passage of history. Mm. And you know, can you describe to me what the collecting sort of market for, you know, contemporary ceramics and, and, and glass and these kinds of um, not craft. <laughs> but how would you describe how would you describe that your your sort of the market for this right now at the moment? Uh, brilliantly open minded. Uh, we can show objects to people of all ages, all backgrounds. It's such a pleasure that we have very, very broad price ranges apart from anything as well as size ranges. Um, we can show the work of a very mature artist, but if he or she makes something smaller, it costs less than their masterpieces. So we can open up the range of collectors on 
the level of how much somebody wants or can spend, but also people who are interested in historic silver are often fascinated by new silver, as long as it really is smart and serious. And the same with glass, the same with ceramics and other objects. So we sell often to people who never thought they'd be buying a contemporary object. But when they see it, they think, ah, that really is um, a sort of continuity of what we we like. We often being a husband and wife, but obviously we is sometimes a single person. But I can't tell you how we sell to people of all ages, really of extreme age often, whether someone older is so pleased to see something that they've never seen before and rather sort of bored by seeing again and again and again something made in 1720, 1820 or 1920. People have been looking at these things for years, so something newly made can catch their eye. And then by contrast, people who have absolutely no interest in historic objects, and no one has to, they look at our contemporary objects and think, aha, and they can talk to our artists. At this fair, we have had so far four artists present on our stand in the first three days. Different artists are coming over the following days. So I always say, well, you can't really have a chat with Rembrandt or Picasso, can you, about the, that painting or that drawing, but you can talk. To, and it bring, brings things very much alive and personal. Personal contact with the person who has created something um, is remembered when you take the object home. And it also just tells you the answer to every single question that springs to mind. And that's very um, peaceful. It makes a sort of sense of peace about knowing so much about the object, not having to just listen to somebody else and believe them, but to just experience from first hand. Uh, so to speak a little bit about the particular highlight, um, uh, here today. Tell me about, uh, I'm going to probably butcher the name, Bouca de Vries. Pretty good. Okay. So, Bouca de Vries Bauke, is okay. a close. Dutch-born gentleman who happens to live now in England and has done for many years. And he's, his career has involved working with famous fashion designer Zandra Rhodes for many years. And then he decided to turn into um, something that had always fascinated him to become a restorer of ceramics of all sorts of historic ceramics. So he went through a very long, uh, very finely established course at West Dean in, in, in Sussex in England and became a, a sort of certified professional restorer. And as a result of being a ceramic restorer, he has been confronted with so many broken objects. And many years ago, he decided to start making sculptures with profoundly broken pieces that were really beyond worthwhile repair. And his work has evolved into several different um, sort of um, strands. And we're looking at the images of a memory vessel where he has taken a profoundly broken object, worked out the size and shape of the original, and had a laboratory glass blower make a glass vase the, the correct size and shape of the original. And then all of the uh, disintegrated, pulverized remains of the original object have been arranged by him inside the glass. Um, they're fixed so they don't all sort of move around, but the object has now become a memory of what it once was. The object is entirely inside the glass reproduction of its original exterior. And this particular one has the further um, addition of strings sort of holding it around and protecting it and some big wax seals with his initials on them. And that um, is something he's taken from seeing a 17th century Chinese vase in the Topkapi Museum in Istanbul, 
which had been wrapped up in cloth, um, maybe to preserve something inside it or just to wrap it and protect it, but how to hold the cloth and a wax seal had been applied. But the wax seal is still on that piece since I think it's the 17th century, which is rather remarkable and romantic in itself. And that inspired his approach to this piece. But Bauke has been making these memory vessels with Chinese ceramics, Japanese ceramics, English Worcester porcelain. We have pieces here. Um, all sorts of different objects have been made into these memories of what they once were. Amazing. And how many how many pieces has he made of these memory vessels? Well, I think there must be 30 or 40 of them out there, but they vary tremendously. And the starting point is, what has somebody broken? People often say to him, so you've taken something, you've broken it. And he's, no, no, I can't afford to do that. Well, if, he doesn't actually need to do that. He um, is often sent things by insurance companies. He's sent objects by collectors and um, owners who have um, been faced with a bit of a disaster. And when it's really just uh, a waste of time to restore it, that becomes material to make one of his sculptures. Wow, amazing. And what, what do you, how would you say you, you would characterize this particular artist in sort of the, the state of what you do today, the state of, of, of you know, the art today? Well, he brings into our contemporary field deep and broad knowledge of historic porcelain. He actually brings the historic porcelain into it. So I really like that. We have a contemporary sculpture made physically of historic material. That's just my line of that history continues. And it's an unusual situation. Some people look at these sculptures and are frankly annoyed by them. They think they're sort of silly. But we always say, well, what would you do with these broken fragments? They are a mice and vase from 1750. What are you going to do? Throw it away? Uh, this has given it a sort of present and a future. And many museums have also respected what Bauker has done. There's a marvelous example of the National Museum of Norway in Oslo has a truly remarkable collection of Italian maiolica from the Renaissance and later. And they bought from us a piece by Bauker, a memory vessel of a I think 17th century Maiolica vase, a really good one with sort of sculptural features, not just painting. And he had made this broken, broken piece into a memory vessel, which is now in their newly opened galleries. It was all renovated and opened last year. And people are very entertained because it draws in the eye of somebody who might not be desperately interested in every single piece of Maiolica in that gallery, but their eye is drawn in to what's happened to that, what's happening, what's going on. And it just helps people stop and look and learn more about what they're in the presence of. And what would you think, uh, if you wanted listeners to understand one thing about uh, your gallery and what you represent, what would you want that one thing to be? Well, I think our position in the historic decorative arts area is the point that we're trying to make it clear that high, high quality ceramics, glass, silver, all these materials, the objects that people make now are in a continuous sort of ranking in history with the historic objects. Continuity is what I'm really hoping people realize. And the fact that so many people are on our stand, um, we really have a lot of visitors on our stand. I think the fact that so many people there means we're making them comfortable, they're enjoying what they're seeing, we have labels on everything. It says who made it, what they used as a material to make it, 
when 2022 mainly because this is March 2023 and the price and even if someone's absolutely not interested in buying, people always love to know the price of things. And they have no, um, very few people will be able to guess the prices. Up next, I speak with a gallery that's probably closest to my heart, Belletage of Vienna. Wolfgang Bauer, who founded the gallery about 47 years ago, focuses on the designs of the early 20th century in Vienna, from the secessionist and Art Nouveau periods. Notably, pieces from the Vienna Werkstätte, the incredible series of workshops started by Coleman Moser and Josef Hoffman. At TAFOF this year, Wolfgang is presenting the rarest of design objects, a mantle clock by Josef Hoffman, one of only two made. Dating to 1903 and almost architectural in shape, it has alabaster columns on two sides that give it a striking profile. I wanted to ask the top expert just how he found the piece, what Hoffman's legacy means to him, and just what kind of budget you need to start collecting works from the period. And how you've been doing this for, how long did you say, the, the gallery? 47 years. 47 years. 47 years, years I do it. And, and why uh, this, your specialty? How did, you, how did you find this? Why start this gallery? Yeah, uh, I was a student, mechanical engineering, which I liked very much. Uh, and, and beside the studies, I did a little bit of buying old things at that time without any knowledge, only a little bit of taste. I liked the things, and at that time, if you liked something, you could buy it at the flea market or at other markets. I sold sometimes pieces I bought before and began to understand this could be a good thing to deal in arts. So I, I did not study uh, arts, but I studied it by myself. As, as studying mechanical engineering, I had uh, I knew how to learn. Today, you're known for... Uh, as an expert in uh, Werkstätte and yeah. and um, sort of the Viennese Art Nouveau era of of design and, and decorative arts, can you explain to someone who uh, maybe not know anything about this era in history how do you describe this phase of, of sort of art and design history? Uh, we have to say I'm from Vienna. I'm real Viennese. I was born there, and uh, the the most uh, fertile era in, in Austria was the time around 1900. We had a lot of uh, very important musicians like Mara in Vienna. We had medicine in Vienna. We had uh, the best doctors. We had the best universities at that time. And everything came together. The, the important painters like Schiele and Klimt and many others. And it was uh, an an enormous output in Vienna. It was really, really a coincidence of science, of art, of music, of everything in highest quality. So in, in, in this climate, uh, we had very good schools for arts and crafts, for paintings, and, and also universities for mechanical engineering and psychology, and uh, this all came together. And we had a very rich uh, Jewish families, and they, uh, as they, most of them uh, didn't wear titles of arms. They didn't have royal titles, uh, but they had a lot of good taste and a lot of uh, modern ideas. In the artists like Hoffmann, Klimt, Schiele, they found a very good uh, uh, partnership. 
they bought from them and they bought the best pieces from them. And so they uh, got a kind of royalty in buying this really good art. And there were a lot of uh, uh, old Jewish families that collected everything, like the Rothschilds and, and the Epsteins. And, and many of them, they had big, big collections in art. Okay. Is it hard? I mean, you know, there are many people who listen to this podcast who are design fans, as I am. Uh, it seems like, you know, to find these Werkstätter pieces is very rare now because they are so sought after, yeah. especially now. Is it really hard for you to find new pieces? It's very hard to find the really good pieces. I'm happy that I'm doing it a long time so I have a collection so I can use pieces I bought 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But it's hard to find because it always was very rare. It was no mass production. All these pieces were made, especially the Wiener Werkstätte pieces, were made in the own silver workshop, in the metal workshop, Others were made in the bookbinding workshop. They they had all these uh, jewelry workshops, yeah, and and uh, this was all made under control of Hoffman. Hoffman did not work, but in the morning he went through the workshops and looked if it's good, and if it was not good, he threw it away. And is it fair to say that uh, his workshop and his it's kind of like the first sort of modern in a strange way, like the first modern luxury brand where they he's, they designed different pieces for different types of things. They had lots of different, you know, what we say in France, like a metier. They had lots of different workshops creating different things with catalogs and they had retail stores. And um, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. It, it, and it was a brand because they had their logos, they had their layouts. They really created a brand. The Hoffman worked before the Wiener Bergstätte existed, but in 1903, with Hoffmann and Kolomosa, together with a wealthy man called uh, Fritz Berndorfer, uh, they founded the Wiener Bergstätte in, in a not very big workshop in the, in the fourth district in Vienna. They started and it was successful, and so they enlarged it very quick. Always lost money. They always needed money. <laughs> Sounds like fashion. <laughs> yeah. They always, uh, uh, they didn't, they did not really make money. No. They often went bankruptcy. And uh, the, the wife of Koloman Moser was a very rich person. And uh, Hoffman always asked Koloman Moser, ask your wife for money. And in 1906, Colonel said, no, I don't ask her anymore. It's not okay. And he quitted the Wiener Werkstätte. But then other people came and gave money. And how many different designs would you say you have personally seen come through your gallery that were produced by uh, no, yeah, it, the it, shop? It depends. Uh, they produced uh, silver pieces. And... I think they made thousands of designs for this. I think at the MAK they have around 20,000 design sketches from Hoffman, Kolomosa, Proce, and uh, Carlo Tocheska, and, and uh, several others. Not all with, with metalwork, many of them with glasswork and uh, a little bit of furniture. And and one of the main highlights of the fair is also speaking of rare pieces, uh, is this clock. Uh, tell me about this clock. It's a designed by Hoffman, correct? It's, it's a design by Hoffman. It's a very early design. It's from 1903. It's catalogued with mo model number five. This means it was the fifth 
growing in metal work he did. Oh, okay. Yeah? So it was like design number five. Design number five. Uh, they, they, and in, 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 in metal, it was the fifth design. And uh, this means it was made in 1903. Two have been made, one in copper and one in white metal. The same form, everything was equal, only the material was a little bit different. And one was made for a very wealthy family, family Spitzer. They had a, a villa at the Hohe Warte from 1901, made by Hoffmann. And the other one was made for the family Korn, uh, which were uh, bandwood manufacturers. And they did a lot of uh, bandwood furniture for Hoffmann. At this point, do you think you've, you've seen it all? Or do you still think that there are pieces that are in private hands that you haven't seen yet? For sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sure there are pieces I haven't seen. Because they, they did really a lot. Uh, designed different designs. And most of them were made one time, two times, maybe five times. Very few have been made in, in, in bigger editions. You cannot say in bigger editions because they had to be ordered. You know? So it was not a, a, you make an edition of 20 and sell them. And if it's out, then maybe you make 20 again. No, they, they made one for a special person, and somebody saw it and said, I want to have it too. Ah, uh, okay. And then they made a second one, yeah? But that was it. That was it, most times, yeah? Not always. Cutlery, they made more, for sure. Uh, and uh, for some lamps, they made uh, in, in, in bigger amounts, but... Uh, uh, very often it was one or two or three pieces. Of and it. with this particular clock, um, what is the, can you, do you know anything about the movement? Is the movement of the clock still functional? It's functional. At the moment it does not work because it travels and sometimes if, if a clock is traveling, it does not want to work, but it's no problem to repair it for a watchmaker, for a clockmaker. And are the pieces inside original? The, the movement yeah. is original? The movement oh, is okay. original, but uh, movements in these clocks are not uh, fr from high highest quality. Okay. It was only to make it run in, in a good quality, but it's not like a Breguet. Why would you say that Hoffman was so important in the history of design? How would you describe, you know, if you had to write an encyclopedia entry yeah. about um, yeah. Hoffman, what would you say? There are many uh, different uh, lines. One line is that he reduced the forms we had before to uh, very straight and, 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 and very easy and uh, very proportional forms without very few uh, decoration. He did not invent uh, the square, but he used it very often. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and he was the first who used the square on the lattice work. So the, the vases I have, the early vases, they look like uh, containers for a dishwasher. A, li a little bit, you know. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. And uh, this this is very interesting. And he also made really uh, industrial design with very simple forms. They are sometimes uh, not that proportional, but very interesting for the people who bought it too, because many of them had uh, big companies constructing machines. So this this uh, it uh, it's a parallel to it, you know. The other, on the other hand, he wanted to come back uh, uh, handicrafts because in the 70s, 80s of the 19th century, they started to make many things industrial, even furniture, cutlery, everything was made industrial. And uh, many uh, and handicraft people, they lost their 
drops. And if someone were to wanted to start collecting uh, this era in design history, um, what is the range today in the market for pieces from that time? Obviously, this is a very extraordinary piece, but just in general, the sort of a starting. You can start with uh, for brass work of out of out of the twenties with two thousand. You can start, and uh, a beautiful silver piece is around twenty thousand, thirty thousand, sixty thousand. And is a lot of the furniture still surviving? Is it hard to find the furniture? Extremely hard to find because they didn't make so much. Very few pieces were made. Also, Wiener Werkstätte furniture is extremely rare. Last but not least, I meet with a fellow New Yorker, Tony Blumka, another dealer whose family has been in the business for generations. He's one of the many at Tafoff that are highly specialized. And in his case, it's medieval and Renaissance sculpture. And his outstanding highlight this Tafoff is a 16th century terracotta Madonna and child by the Florentine artist Montelupo. Not only is the work stunning and detailed, but it was originally considered to be by an unknown artist to Blanca. But thanks to his close-knit community of collectors and specialists, he discovered its origins. It's yet another reminder of how fairs like Tafoff are really more than just marketplaces. Instead, they can be a catalyst for the development of art history. Tell me a little bit about the gallery. Well, I'm the fourth generation uh, dealing in... I think it was, it was broader initially when it was in Vienna uh, in the 19th century. So dealing mostly in uh, medieval Renaissance and Baroque works of art, jewelry, metalwork, enamels, anything that relates to that period, with the exception of weapons. And, and what do you love about uh, the type, the specific part of the, the collecting world that you specialize in? Well, initially it's osmosis since I grew up with it. Unfortunately, my father died when I was very young, so I didn't have that much time with him. But the time I did have, we spent uh, four months out of the year in Europe traveling. Um, those times were a lot easier. You could import and export things. And he found things along the way. And as children, we just tagged along. And it just became, um, as I said, initially osmosis, but it, it became a natural progression. And I just fell into it. And, and so you've obviously, you've been coming to TAFE off for, for quite some time. With the exception, with the exception of COVID. So you have to remove a year and a half. So officially it's 26 years, but we've been coming since 1995. And so what does TAFE off and the, the market here represent to you? It's very strange in that uh, we're based in New York. Uh, I see more uh, academics and museum people here, more clusters of uh, curators, directors, and patrons together coming here as a, as a, as a venue to find something. And, and tell me a little about the people that come and collect, you know, what you sell. Do they tend to, you know, collect a lot? Do they, is it, they collect these with other, with things like paintings and, you know, how does it fit in with their greater collection? Some, some of these collectors are eclectic, but some of them are very focused. Um, there, we are in a very specialized field. There aren't that many people that collect what we do, but for that purpose, there aren't very many of us. You'll see maybe three or four people in this fair that do exactly what we do. Most people focus in one area. We have a great old Spanish collector who came in and was focusing on crosses, and that's all he collects. And we have another collector who comes in and occasionally buys medieval enamels, but then he might focus to 
a 15th century English alabaster. And then you have museums, and then museums come in to fill their collections. Um, there are certain things that we bring or we brought this year that we've sold to many American museums, but some of them don't have that. And we have this great lion, which is called an aquamanile, which is a vessel used for washing hands before a ceremony. And since it's just a lion, it can be used by every religion, even the Jewish religion, because there are no human forms depicted. And that's the quintessential medieval object. And most museums that collect across the board from medieval to Renaissance, they should have one of those because it is such an important object. So we brought one this year and there's interest for that. You know, things with museums usually don't happen immediately, even though they bring their patrons, it's a longer process. You know, it can take up to six months, most of individuals who come in, if they obviously find something they like, they leave with it or... And what would you say, um, why do you think people are attracted to collect medieval art? That's a very difficult question. I can't, I can't answer that. There are, I have one or two collectors that are absolutely obsessed and they, perhaps something they grew up around, um, visited museums, fell in love with, um, you know, either it's the, the, the realistic features of medieval sculpture or Renaissance sculpture or the relig religious aspect uh, that goes along with that, although I think that's much rarer. Mm. And when it comes to, like, is it a difficult thing to collect, you know, medieval sculpture? It's is a it difficult. Nowadays, it's a difficult thing to collect great quality because for the few wonderful pieces out there, there's great competition. Because obviously, as all collectors, these collectors are wealthy. And they can, especially now with the internet and with auctions online, it becomes almost com a little bit competitive with dealers and collectors. But still, we find fine things. Okay. And you have a, a specific uh, a highlight here for the show, um, which is um, a Madonna and Child. Uh, tell me about it. Well, I bought it several years ago at auction without knowing, just because I loved it. it it's a very, very beautiful, um, emotional and attractive uh, terracotta, 15th century sculpture. Uh, of a Madonna and child. Even even the Christ child foretells his death because he's carrying the three uh, nails from the crucifixion, which is kind of amazing, that, that, that artistic rendering. But what happened was um, we showed it here a long time ago and without any attribution and all of a sudden found out that this David Lucidi, um, who's a great Italian academic, had published this piece a couple of times. So he really wrote the catalog resume on this sculpture. And we asked him if he would write a small, well, I don't know if you call it a catalog or book for us, so we could prove absolutely that it's by him. Although in this period and in earlier periods, you can't really prove anything's absolute unless you have a signature. So even though we're all convinced that it's by him, at the fair, they, they still ask you to attribute it to the, to the master. They, they don't allow uh, an absolute name. And I'm, we're convinced, um, actually, he believes that this particular sculpture was used for a competition in the new marketplace in Florence because they wanted a marble Madonna and child. And so various uh, important artists of the period submitted a, a sculpture, and he believes his terracotta 
was one of them that was submitted. And these terracotta, um, you know, sculptures, were they often done as sort of like a proof before it's like going a into a marble? Yeah, it's, it's not always. Sometimes they can be objects in their own right and painted. But in this case, it seems though that it was a model. And uh, for this, I don't think he won the competition. Um, you know, if you look in, in, in uh, his letters from Michelangelo, that they were close friends and all of the uh, Florentine artists. And so they, it, it's interesting that this artist has not really been studied as all those other great artists. Only in the last 20 years has come to light. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. Because, you know, a lot of these sculptures or, or sculptors are anonymous. And I think he, David, brought this to light. Um, and with some earlier art historians who started the attribution towards Baccio del Montelupo, he really finalized it. And how, I mean, you know, in the pantheon of all of the terracottas that you may have uh, sold in your life, what would you say, why did this stand out to the committee here um, at Dayfoff to make it a highlight? She's just extraordinarily beautiful. Um, even the even the Christ child is beautiful. Often, the representation of, for some reason, of the Christ childs, they're not as beautiful. They're sometimes they're actually unattractive. Um, the drapery is just flows, and and, and there's perfection in that. Um, he draws great comparisons through drapery to other works known by the artist, which is almost a signature in a way. And what would, what would you say that you've learned about the, the world of collecting, like the medieval sculpture, that you would say that you would want people to really understand? So that's a great question because a lot of – we don't have a tremendous amount of collectors. We have a lot of collectors that will come to the fair and perhaps buy something. But the repeat serious collectors, it becomes more of an intellectual friendship and we actually meet and, and this, you know, there, there are groups, um, art historical groups, and then you have collecting groups. And we know, don't only discuss the, the works of art, but as I said, it becomes a friendship. And often, and I don't know if this is the right thing to say, often collectors know they're so obsessed that they know more than the dealers or they're more immersed. So you're learning from them in a sense. Well, you we can. learn from each <laughs> other and I listen. I'm a great listener and, and yeah. Do you collect yourself? Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the, your prized uh, possession in your collection? It's something very interesting because it's something that that um, it's, it's a very crazy object. And I know the Metropolitan Museum wanted to have it, and they just didn't react. And and so the, <clears throat> the head of that department was here yesterday, and I asked him. I said, Griff, you know, are you still interested? Because we're always interested. But I've got to tell you. That it's a it's a jester, okay, a crazy eleophile, a, a crazy thing, which is a medieval toy. And you think of the medieval period, there are no toys. It's the dark ages, but this is a bronze of a jester. About how big? Like a foot? About a foot, with holes in some erotic places and non-erotic places. And what you do, had below it would have been a container or leather satchel, and you would have filled it with water and put it close to a fireplace. And it would steam, and then the steam would come out of all these Oh, areas. I see. Now, I told you there these aquamanila, those, these lion forms, they're very rare. This is 
10 times rare. So it turns out they came to me, and I, they came to the stand, and they said, oh, by the way, the Louvre is having an exhibition on jesters and fools. And I told them about it. 12 hours later, she came, the Louvre came running, can we borrow it, can we borrow it? So that that is my pricing, and now it's gonna- Okay, yeah, so we can so see an it exhibition, in the I guess it's gonna be in 26. Okay, amazing. Um, if there was one thing you wanted people to understand about this uh, particular Madonna and Child, this particular piece, what would you want that one thing to be? A, that it's, she's beautiful. And um, it just, it's a magnet. It just attracts people. Uh, and I think also importantly that we have answers uh, bought unattributed and, now, and still a wonderful figure. It doesn't change things drastically, but it's great to know that there's new art history that comes out and academic research that narrows uh, heretofore not known things. And now we know that this piece was in a competition in the late 15th century. I mean, that's, you know, new history. Thank you to all the dealers involved today, and especially to the Tafoff team, including Mark Rosen, Magda Gregorian, Lauren Kasten, and Sadie Dame, for making this episode happen. For more information about the fair, visit tafoff.com. That's T-E-F-A-F.com. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Thank you.